Well, you can turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. Uh, Romans chapter 4, and we're going to really look at a few verses this morning uh, from verse 13 uh, through to verse 16. So it's not a large uh, section, uh, but there's uh, some really important things for us uh, to consider uh, from this text. Now, you want to listen to the sermon this morning because, and you should actually every morning, I'm not just saying that only for this morning, but because it is the promise of God for all who believe. In other words, or put it another in a question, what does the believer or the follower of Christ have beyond this life? What are we looking forward to? Now, one thing we have to say is, is it okay to ask that question? Is it okay for me to be matlabi um, in my relationship with God, right? What's in it for me kind of a thing. And I think it's okay. It's okay. And I'll tell you why. I'll give you the example of uh, Hebrews chapter 11, for instance, which is the great passage on faith, right? All of the saints of faith. And several times through that passage, you will see uh, a description of how these people persevered on because they were looking forward to something that they were going to receive, having gone through the difficulties and the trials that they were faced with. And so there was this hope, this anticipation of what was to come that enabled them to live life in the present. Take, for example, Moses in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 26. It says this, it says, He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for the reward. Moses was looking forward to something that was to come that helped him bear up under the reproaches that he faced for the sake of God, for the sake of Christ. And so looking forward gives us great courage to live each day for God. Make sense? Yeah? I love the song that we just sang, you know, yet not I but through Christ in me. And there was that one verse in the middle that said this. It says, with every breath, I long to follow Jesus. For he, was, he has said that he will bring me home. That's looking forward, isn't it? And day by day, I know he will renew me until I stand with joy before the throne. And so that's why I'm able to follow Jesus with every breath because I'm looking forward to that reward, to that blessing, to that joy forevermore in the presence of God. And so that's what we really want to kind of think about this morning when we talk about heirs of the world, not hairs of the world. Please get the pronunciation right. This is one of those words where everybody's like, heirs, heirs, I don't know what it is. It's heirs of the world, all right? Meaning inheritors, people who are receiving an in inheritance. All right, so Romans chapter 4, verse 13 to 16. Is my voice okay at the back? I feel like it's a little bit of a, it's not clearer. Is it okay at the back? No? Needs to be a little bit clearer, maybe. All right. Okay, let's, let's continue over here. Now, there was a promise made to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world. Look at verse 13. It says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world. So that's what we're kind of picking up about. That's what we want to talk about this, this morning. Now, this promise was to whom? To Abraham and his offspring. To Abraham and his offspring, which is who? 
Well, we looked at this last week, and I don't know if you remember it, but maybe you've got to go back and listen or just hear it again. It's not only the Jewish people who are the, the, the heirs or the offspring, so to speak, of Abraham, but it is all those who believe in God, all those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, who are offspring of Abraham. They are the children of faith, so to speak, Abraham being the father of faith. Now we have to remember over here that Abraham was himself at one time a Gentile. He was. In fact, when God called him, Abraham was a man who lived in the Ur of the Chaldeans, which is present-day Iraq, somewhere over there. And he had moved from there with his family to a place called Haran, which is probably present-day Syria, somewhere up there, when God called him and said, Abraham, I want you to leave, and you can read about this in Genesis 12, I want you to leave your father's house and your people and your land, and I want, to go, I want you to go to a land that I will show you. And so Abraham does that by faith, and you can see this in Genesis uh, chapter 12. And God promises him in Genesis 12, before anything was done, he says, when you go, I will bless you, and I will make you a blessing, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed in you. That was a promise made before Abraham did anything, really. That's important for us to note. In Genesis chapter 15, which we touched on last week, we saw that God promised Abraham his very own offspring, a son, through whom would come a people. And Abraham believed God, and Genesis 15 verse 6 says, and he believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness, meaning God credited righteousness to him. He, he declared him right with God. That's what righteousness means. That's a crucial verse for what Paul is saying over here. The promise was not made to Abraham after he was circumcised, which was a sign of the covenant, but before Abraham was circumcised. God's covenant promise to Abraham was made before Abraham could really do anything to deserve it or claim it. Now stick with me. I know I'm just doing a bit of a review, but we'll get to what we're talking about this morning. Now that was true for Abraham then, and it is true for us now. We receive God's promises by faith in Jesus Christ. Not because of how good we are. You heard me? You got that? We receive God's promises by faith in Jesus Christ, not because of how good or bad we are. Our actions, our words neither qualify us or in that sense disqualify us from God's faithfulness in our lives once we have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ because we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. That's really, really at the heart of what he's talking about over here. Because if it was given based on our performance or on you know, keeping the law, if it was based on how well we kept God's law, it would lead to one of two things. It would probably lead to boasting. Oh, you know what? Such a good person. But the problem with that is boasting is also sin. So, oops. You know, you've fallen into that in, in, inadvertently, so to speak. Or it could lead to the other thing, which is condemnation, which is the more likely one, because all of us come short 
of the glory of God, of the holiness of God. We can't make it on our own effort. And that's the more likely one. If we were to go to God and say, look at my works, look at what I've done, it would probably lead to condemnation. So I've got three observations uh, for, from the text before us, all right, for this morning. We're going to spend the bulk of our time on the first one and we'll really zip through the second two, all right, I promise. Okay, so here's, here they are. The first one, the first, here are the three points really. Our inheritance is God's promise to us. Our inheritance is received by faith and our inheritance rests on God's grace. They're really from the text, okay? And so we'll unpack them as we go along. All right, let's get into the first one. The first one is our inheritance is God's promise to us. Look at verse 13. Here's what Paul writes in Romans 4.13. He says, For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be the heir... For, let me go say that again. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. It came through the righteousness of faith. Notice first over here that the promise is to Abraham and his offspring. And his offspring. If you drop down to verse 16, you'll see that the scriptures are talking about all of the offspring of Abraham. That is those who share the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So it's clear that all believers are the offspring of Abraham, which I've already uh, talked about. Now I want you to notice over here in verse 16, we're told that the promise is guaranteed to all his offspring. You like that? There's very few things in life that are guaranteed, even though they say it. But this says it is guaranteed to all his offspring. And we'll, we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit more in a bit. But in Romans verse six, uh, 4 verse 16, it says... That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, which is a description of the Jewish person who is a believer in Christ, but also to, one, to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, meaning the Gentile person, like Abraham, the Gentile, before he became the father of the Jewish people, had faith and was justified by faith. So I want to show you a few other uh, references over here that speak of us as the heirs of God. All right? So this is a, a promise uh, that God has given uh, to us. Okay, here we go. Uh, Galatians 3.29, it says this. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You got that? Romans 8, 17, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Titus 3, 7, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Ephesians 3, 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So there's an abundance really of scripture, many more even that speak of us as being heirs along with the offspring of Abraham. Now, what is the promise? It says we're heirs of the promise. What is the promise? The promise is that Abraham and his offspring would be heirs of the world. 
That's the title of the message. We're heirs of the world. And if, if we're heirs, then it means we have an inheritance which we receive not by works of the law, but by God's promise to those who place their faith in Jesus Christ. And so let's unpack that a little bit, okay? I want to spend some time on that. What does it mean to be the heir of the world? Or what is our inheritance? Now, when Paul uses the phrase heir of the world, it's kind of an umbrella phrase that covers all that a believer has in Jesus Christ. Absolutely everything we have in Jesus Christ is covered sort of under that umbrella phrase, the, the heir of the world, that we are heirs of the world. And so let me give you a few scriptures that talk about this. All right. Number, first of all, in the, in the most basic fundamental way, we are recipients. We're promised what? Eternal life. That's basic, right? We've got that. We talk about that. You know, we, we, uh, you know we, we, that we will have life forevermore. And that comes through our faith in Jesus Christ. But then in James chapter 2, verse 5, here's what James writes. He says, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? We're heirs of a kingdom which he has promised to those who love him. Uh, we, we don't really get this because we're a democracy. We have no idea what kingdoms are like. And, you know, all of those things are, you know, old stories of rajas and kings and thrones and all of those things. And so maybe we don't grasp the, the significance of it. But it's a massive thing that there is the kingdom of God that God is establishing as he reigns and rules and is, you know, it speaks of this mustard seed that's slowly growing and will dominate everything, that kingdom of God. We are the heirs of it in Christ Jesus. And if you wanted to add to that, and I think I have it at the end of this section, we are those who will reign with Christ forevermore. We will reign with him forevermore in that kingdom. But let's go on over here. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, it said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. In fact, if you read the Beatitudes, several times he talks about this inheritance of the kingdom of heaven, of inheriting the earth, of inheriting the kingdom of God. He talks about it a few different times in Matthew chapter 5. He talks about a reward that is great in heaven. Those who are blessed, those who look unto God, those who are poor in spirit, those who are pure in heart, will inherit these things that God has promised. Let's go on over here. First Peter 1, 4-5. I love what Peter says here. He says that we are born again to a living hope. And then he talks about the inheritance. And here's what he says. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Now we can just stop on this verse and just observe a few things over here. Right? The first thing that he says is that this inheritance is what? Imperishable. Imperishable meaning indestructible. It's indestructible. Everything on earth, think about this for a moment. Everything on earth is passing away. You know, we just got a new car 
and I and I'm told the minute you drive the car out of the showroom, 25% of the value is gone. Right? That's terrible, man. I mean, I've just driven one kilometer, you know, and it's just gone. And but that's the nature of this world. Everything is depreciating. It's perishable. It is destructible, so to speak. It's coming to nothing. And so it makes no sense for us to place the premium that we do on this world that is in fact passing away. As appealing, as beautiful as it looks to our eye, as pleasing as it is to us, it's perishable. It's passing away. I'm reading um, The Hobbit by Tolkien. Uh, you watched the movie. I'm reading the book. I've, read, I've watched the movie also, but I've got to read the book. And I tell you, if you read Tolkien, please read Tolkien. It's unbelievable. I mean, the way he writes is one of the best. Like, the way it just flows. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. But in, that, uh, in, that, in The Hobbit, there's, there's a description of these dragons. And of course, Smaug is, or Smaug is the dragon who you know, uh, lives in that mountain. And there's a description of these dragons who, in generations past, used to steal gold and jewels from the dwarves. And the way he describes it is that they would hoard all of those valuables and they would do nothing with them, but sleep on them. But they just collected them up. And I love that picture. As I was reading about it, I was thinking, man, that's, that's a pretty cool image of us. We collect and collect and collect and we sleep on it and we're, a pretty, we're pretty much a dragon about it when it comes to other people as well, right? When it comes to our possessions and our material things and we do nothing with it. And he says in that book, he says, dragons collect all the stuff, but they can't even shape or form one of those things into anything that's useful to them. And we see this with Smaug in the, in the movie, he's just sleeping on those valuables. And I think sometimes we're like that with the possessions of this world where we hoard and we collect, but we, do, we don't realize that it, it's, it's nothing that we carry with us. It has no eternal value whatsoever, but not the inheritance that God has promised. That's an imperishable, indestructible, eternal inheritance. And then he goes on and he describes it like this. He says that this inheritance is undefiled, meaning that it is uncorruptible or uncorrupted by anything. It is pure and holy and perfect in every way. And we will be raised, you know, the First Corinthians 15 talks about how we will be raised with, with bodies that are perfect and holy and uncorruptible, undefiled bodies. But not just our bodies, but our hearts and our minds will be perfect in every way. Be perfect in every way. And I know, you know, we might say, where's the fun in that? Is, doesn't the proverb say stolen water is sweet? Isn't there something nice about a little bit of milch masala? You know, we've got to add that. That's the flavor of life, the spice of life. Where's the fun in that? And I, and I think we, we say that because we're still dwelling in this body of sin. And so, yeah, in a sense, of course, we might think like that. But we don't yet fully understand 
the absolute joy and pleasure of that kind of perfection. And that's why we can't fathom it. We can't understand it. We, don't, we have a dim view of it. But let me just say to you, God, who is absolutely perfect in every conceivable way, is the most joyful person in the universe. The most happy person. The scriptures describe him. In fact, Jesus says that you will uh, enter into my, you will have my joy and your joy will be complete. Or in Psalm 16, it says, in your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures evermore. God knows the perfections of joy with the absence of unholiness and impurity. He doesn't need that to be absolutely joyful. And I don't think we grasp that. And so we think it might be boring, but it won't be. It's, it's unfathomable to us, but by faith, we've got to hold on to the fact that it is undefiled. Thirdly, he says over here that this inheritance is unfading, meaning that it will never diminish in its glory. It will never diminish in its glory. You know, I wore a, a pair of pants the other day and I went to another church to preach and my wife looked at the photos afterwards. She's like, that's a faded pant. I really like the pant, but it's a faded pant. And I'm like, stuff fades, isn't it? We, we spend money on it and then after a little while, it just fades. It loses its, its glory and whatever is beautiful about it. But the glory, the inheritance that we have is unfading in its glory. Unfading in its glory. A couple of other uh, references over here. The Bible speaks of us receiving a crown of righteousness. 2 Timothy 4.8. James 1.12 says that we receive a crown of life. 1 Peter 5.4 talks about an unfading crown of glory. And if you read 1 Corinthians 9, it talks about an imperishable uh, reward that we receive. We run for an imperishable reward. I love those descriptions. And then, of course, 2 Timothy 2.12 speaks of us reigning with Christ, which I mentioned earlier, that we reign with Christ. I love that. That's, that's a glimpse into the inheritance that we have. These amazing, wonderful, beautiful things that we look forward to. John Calvin writes this of our inheritance, and I'll read it out for you. He says, we do not have the full enjoyment of it at present. We walk in hope, and we do not see the thing as it were present, but we see it by faith. Although then the world gives itself liberty to trample us underfoot, as they say, Although our Lord keeps us tried with many temptations, although he humbles us in such a way that it may seem that we are sheep appointed to the slaughter so that we are continually at death's door, yet we are not destitute of a good remedy. And while seeing that the Holy Spirit reigns in our hearts, we have something for which to give praise even in the midst of all our temptations. Therefore, we should rejoice, mourn, grieve, give thanks, be content, and wait. And wait. What an inheritance we have. And I know life can feel like a steamroller sometimes, right? It's just like, boom, it hits you. 
and you don't know what to do, you don't know where to go. It feels like that sometimes. But we wait on God. I love Psalm 46. It talks about though the earth give way, though the mountains be cast into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam. And at the end of that verse 10, it says, be still and know that I am God that I will be exalted over the nations. And that's what he calls us to, that waiting on the Lord, that trust, that confidence in God, that we are able to look forward in faith even as we deal with things today. And I love that, you know, uh, the scriptures say that that's a promise, that inheritance is promised as a guarantee to all who believe in Jesus Christ. Let's come to the second uh, one. All right, and I said we'll spend most of our time on the first. We'll get through the second two a little bit quicker. Here's what he says. Our inheritance is received by faith. Our inheritance is received by faith. So it's not received by works of the law. And I want to, you know, repeat that. You've got to get that into your heads and our heads that we, we don't work for it. We don't accomplish it because of our goodness or anything that we are. We are given it by faith in Jesus Christ as a gracious gift of God. That's really important for us to get. Because everything in this world is performance, performance, performance. We are attuned to that. We're always thinking in that way. But not when it comes to our relationship with God. Get out of that and walk by faith, trusting in him. Of course, we, we follow his commandments, but we do it by faith. We do it because God has already justified us. And here's what he says in, um, in Romans 4, 13 to 15. He says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that we would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law who are to be if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Verse 16, if you just drop down, it says that is why it depends on faith. That's why it depends on faith. Now I want to just unpack this a little bit for us. First of all, he clearly says that the promise that they would be heirs of the world did not come through the law or the keeping of the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now we've talked about that, all right? And Abraham was justified by faith, not by circumcision or anything else or any other religious practice, but by faith in God. So that's the first thing that we notice over here. Now, in verse 14, uh, he says that if the heirs are declared to be those who try to justify themselves according to the law, then faith is null and the promise is void. If we try and justify ourselves by our works, faith is null and the promise is void. Now you have to stop and say, wait a minute, why? Why? What, what do you mean? Why are you saying this? Verse 15 gives us the answer. It says, because the law brings nothing but the wrath of God. God's righteous wrath and anger. You see, if you bring the law to bear, if you say, I'm going to live according to the law, the end is nothing but condemnation. So you don't want to bring the law to bear in that sense. And then he makes a very interesting statement in verse 15. And I scratched my head a little bit about this, right? Here's what he says in verse 15. He says, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. 
where there is no law, there is no transgression. Let me say this, all right? Simply put, what he's saying over here is before the law came, when did the law come? Moses, Mount Sinai, Ten Commandments, all of those laws that came, right? That was when the law came. Now, before the law came, that's what he's saying over here, people did not know that they were lawbreakers. I mean, if I didn't tell you it was wrong, then you'd say, I didn't know. You know, that's, that's basically what he's saying over here. They did not know that they were lawbreakers. And so in that sense, there was no transgression in in inverted commas and quotations, so to speak. There was no transgression because they didn't know the law. The coming, here's the key point. The coming of the law did not make people better. It didn't make them better. It only revealed how corrupt they were. And you think, right, so before the law, everybody's doing whatever they want. The law comes, ooh, we've got to shape up. No, it didn't have that effect. In fact, it, it revealed even more how sinful and ghastly sin was. It didn't change people. It only, it only revealed how sinful they were. And they continued in their sin. They continued in their sin. Therefore, you cannot depend, and that's the point he's making over here, you cannot depend on the law to save anyone. You cannot depend on the law to save anyone. I've always used this analogy when I think about the law. It's like the, the traffic light on Delhi roads. It's a good law, isn't it? Red means, please get this right. right? Red means stop, but not for Delhiites. But it's a good law. But here's the thing about the red light. As good as it is, as perfect as it is, it is powerless to make you comply. Where does that come from? It comes from the policeman standing on the other side, if you see him, or an inner compulsion, an inner sense of what is right and wrong, where you say, you know what? I've got to obey this good law. That's what the law of God is like. It's a good law. It's a perfect law. But it is powerless to cause us to live in compliance with it. We need something on the inside. And so therefore, you cannot depend on the law to save anyone. You need grace through faith in Jesus Christ. You know, one of my favorite stories is Les Miserables. And it's written by Victor Hugo. You've, you've probably heard of this. Maybe you've seen the movie as well. It's a story with many characters uh, that are, you know, and many intertwined stories. So it's a, it's a great story. It's quite a long one that you can read through. But the main protagonist in the story is a man uh, by the name of Jean Valjean, all right? Say that, it's French, Jean Valjean. We can discuss this afterwards. All right, the story begins with Valjean being released from jail after 19 years. He was first arrested because he stole bread to feed his family, and he got a five-year sentence, but then he tried to escape, and then he tried to escape, and he tried to escape, and he ended up being in jail for 19 years when he finally is released from jail. And when he's released, he's given a yellow passport because that's what ex-cons got. And so he went out and he tried to get boarding for the night, but no inn would allow him in when they saw his yellow passport. 
And so this poor man is, you know, wandering the streets. He's really bitter and angry, sleeping on the side. And one of those nights, a pastor, a bishop, Bishop Myriel, uh, takes him in one night and he says, you can stay with me for tonight. During the night, Valjean runs away with the silver from the pastor's house. Something in him, you know, and he kind of picks it up and he runs away with the silver from that house. And he goes around the corner and he's caught by the police. This is a little bit of a long story, all right? So stick with me on this. He's caught by the police and he's brought back to Bishop Myriel's house. And, or, and so the, the door opens and the bishop looks at the police and he looks at Valjean and he sees all that silver. And immediately the bishop says, you know what? I gave it to him. In fact, he picks up two other silver candlesticks and he gives it to him and he says, you forgot these also. I love that. What a story of grace, right? And so the policemen, they, they, you know, they, they're happy with that. And so they leave Valjean and, and they head off. And Jean Valjean, for him, that is a life-changing moment at that, at that, in that instance in what happens. He goes out and he determines to change his life, to work hard, to become an honest, upright man. And he actually does that. His, out, his complete outlook changes and he in fact becomes a respectable man. He becomes a wealthy man. But he understands grace. And so if you read, see, look through that story, there are other instances where he exercises grace toward other people in the story because he gets it now. But there's another character in the story, the main protagonist, the main, sorry, the main antagonist. His, his name is Javert. He's the inspector, he's the policeman. Now, Javert was the prison guard when Valjean was in prison and he recognizes Valjean outside of prison and he's a bit like unhappy to see him successful in life. And Javert was a stickler for the law. He was a strict person when it came to the law and he couldn't see life any other way. On one occasion, Valjean somehow forced Inspector Javert to forgive a prostitute and to let her go, which Javert does very reluctantly. But he is now determined to get Valjean, Valjean locked up in jail because he cannot tolerate that he's a free man and moreover that he's a successful man. And so in his mind, he thinks that this guy has made this money through his thievery, through his all that he's done. He couldn't possibly be an honest man after being in jail 19 years. He cannot believe it. Years later, as the story goes on, there's an instance when Valjean spares the inspector's life. There's a, some sort of a revolt and, and this inspector is condemned to be shot. They give Valjean the opportunity to do that. He takes him around the corner, shoots the gun in the air and tells the inspector, free, you're free to go. He spares his life. And Inspector Javert gets away. A short while later, things reverse. And Inspector Javert now has the opportunity to arrest Valjean on some charge. And Jean Valjean, coming to the end of the story, he asks for one more opportunity. He says, let me go back to visit my home once and then I'll come to you and you can arrest me. Now the Inspector Javert agrees. And he walks down the street, Valjean goes off and Javert walks down the street and, he's, and he realizes that he's caught between the strict, his, strict belief, uh, his strict belief in the law and the mercy 
that Valjean had shown him. He can't reconcile the two. He can't understand, you know, this law is the law. And on the other hand, this guy showed me mercy. He can't put the two together. And so he, can, he no longer feels like he can actually arrest Vajon and put him in jail, which was the law. Unable to cope with this dilemma, Inspector Javet commits suicide by throwing himself into the river. And I love that, that twist in the story because it highlights for us the kind of dilemma that some people live with. We have the law that is so strict and strong on one side, and then you have grace on the other side. Vajor understood grace, and he lived by grace. Javert, for all his righteousness, so to speak, according to the law, for all the legalism in him, simply could not make room for grace in his life. He couldn't make room for grace to Valjean. He couldn't make room for grace to himself. To himself. And we live like that. We are hard, bitter people because it's all about the law. We condemn people all around us and we condemn ourselves. And into that comes the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as a breath of life and fresh air, so to speak, and clears all of that out and says, you believe in me and you will be saved. I love, I love what that story illustrates for us. We cannot simply receive God's blessings and promises by our works. We receive it by faith, by faith in Jesus Christ. Justification before God, salvation, forgiveness, reconciliation, all these can be received only by faith in Jesus, who is God's gift of grace to us. This brings us to our third and final point for this morning. Our inheritance rests on God's grace. Our inheritance rests on God's grace. I like what he says in verse 16 of Romans 4. He says, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, which is speaking about the Jewish believers, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. The promise rests on faith. It rests, or it rests on grace and it's guaranteed to all the offspring. I love that. Grace is what? Undeserved favor. We don't deserve it. Undeserved favor. We don't deserve the promises of God. We did nothing to earn it. There's nothing that makes us fit for heaven. It's only God's grace working through faith in Jesus Christ that brings us the promises of God. Notice that because this promise rests on grace, it is guaranteed to all the offspring of Abraham. It is guaranteed to all the offspring of Abraham. Because it's not based on my performance. 
This is not, you know, God in heaven saying he loves me, he loves me not, she loves me. It's not, it's not one of those fickle things that today you're in and tomorrow you're out and today you're in and tomorrow you're out. No, no. It's far more robust than that. You and I are kept and guarded in the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Romans chapter 8 verse talks about this. 1 Peter chapter 1, which we talked about that inheritance, he says that it's kept in heaven for you. And at the end, he says, you are kept for that inheritance. It's far more robust than that. And let me give you another verse that, that talks about this. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. It says this, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. What is the Holy Spirit doing in us? Apart from counseling and comforting and leading and guiding, he is also a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Amazing. Amazing. What a great promise we have in Christ. A sure inheritance sealed with the Holy Spirit dwelling in us because of God's grace working through faith in our lives. You don't want to be like Inspector Javel who could simply not let go of the law and he sought to justify himself and it was wrong for him to show grace and so he took his own life. That's the extent with which he lived under the law. In one way, he was right about the law. He could not see it as transforming, but convicting in a person's life. And that's what the law does. But there is something beyond the law, and that is the grace of God, the favor of God, available freely in Christ Jesus to all who believe. I want to give you a moment now to just quietly reflect on what you've heard this morning. Much has been said, but I'm sure the Spirit of God has impressed particular things on your mind and heart that He purposed for you to hear this morning. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this grace that you've given to us so that by faith we might receive the promise that we might have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us. We give thanks to you, Lord, for your word and for your promises. Help us, Lord, to live in the hope and the anticipation of all that is to come. Help us to walk faithfully before you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.